welcome to another episode of The Shift Change, our podcast about all things nursing. We are your hosts, Michelle and Claire. In healthcare, we're bombarded with information. Information about patients, information about processes, policies, research, evidence, operational information, all kinds of information. In the fast-paced, high-stakes industry of healthcare, this includes everything from what a patient puts on intake forms, the data from nursing assessments on admission and in ongoing care. We get diagnostic data that informs treatment decisions and information about patients' health histories. Sometimes patients provide their own data in patient portals and accessible databases. Healthcare providers share information within teams to meet the goals of providing team-based care. And perhaps the most important reason for all of this data collection, compiling, analysis, and planning is that this information allows healthcare providers to have a comprehensive understanding of the patient, ultimately collaborating and sharing it with patients, clients, family members, and all those who are involved in the care. And also with the public, because this information is used for population health, it's used for research, and it's used for quality improvement. The value of timely and reliable information sharing on all these levels has never been more evident than now as we enter the fourth year of the COVID-19 global pandemic. We could have an entire episode or even a season dedicated to the benefits and controversies of large-scale health information sharing and the impacts of disinformation, but we're not going to delve into that today. Today, we begin this conversation by focusing on the patient care level. Information sharing at the direct care level, that shared between healthcare providers and healthcare recipients. On today's episode, our guest, Ian, will share with us his experience as a patient in the healthcare system and tell us the story of how information sharing has impacted his healthcare journey over the past four years, including how it's helped and hindered his experiences. But first, a bit about information sharing and privacy when it comes to healthcare. In Canada, healthcare information sharing is governed by provincial legislation, such as the BC Freedom of Information and Protection of Privacy Act. Sometimes this is referred to as FOIPA. While this legislation is largely intended to ensure private information stays private, sometimes rigid and impractical bounds of confidentiality can have a negative impact on the patient experience. Barriers exist to easily and quickly access your own health information. There are many hoops to jump through to even request copies of your own medical records. And add to this a layer of trying to find a clear answer within these records about what exactly did happen during a certain procedure or following a given screening test. In today's episode, we'll chat about how information sharing can be helpful, harmful, and everything in between from the patient's perspective and from the nurse's perspective. Hi, Ian, welcome to the podcast. We're so grateful to have you as our guest this month as we talk about all things information sharing. And this is so cool that you're our first guest in three seasons who isn't a nurse. We're so glad to have you join us. To start out, can you tell us a bit about yourself, like who you are, what keeps you busy and gets you excited about life, and then a bit about your story as it relates to healthcare over the past few years? Yeah, absolutely. I'm assuming you call your listeners nurses, so hello, nurses. 
Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, the reason I'm on this podcast, first and foremost, is I'm Claire's husband is one of my very best friends. And Claire is a very good friend as well. Claire's husband and I went to law school together back in, in Vancouver in, in 2008 to 2011. I'm a lawyer. I live in Edmonton uh, now with my wife and our, our two-year-old, soon-to-be three-year-old son. In terms of, you know, what I gets me up in the morning or gets me excited, I mean, a lot of it is is him at a very fun age and is, is super fun. And then I live kind of a slightly odd existence now because of my healthcare challenges and where I've been. So back in 2019, and actually at Claire and Tim's one-year anniversary party in Calgary, I started feeling kind of a little bit uneasy in my stomach and thought I kind of had food poisoning. So I left the party early and spent uh, basically 24 hours in our hotel room throwing up and, and not feeling very good. And then eventually my my wife was like, you actually have to go see a doctor. So we went to an emergent care center in downtown Calgary and kind of within 30 minutes of getting there, they had done an x-ray and said, you have a tumor in your colon. Uh, and that kind of set off the journey that we've been on since then, which at the time that was stage three colon cancer. And I went through uh, 12 rounds of chemo in 2019 and early 2020, you know, with the hope was that that would be the end of it. And it, after a while, it looked like that was the end of it. And then in 2021, I started, you know, you do these tests when you're in remission and, and they're looking for a protein to spike, which would be an indication that something might be happening. And, and in early 2021, this protein started to spike and I was doing tests and nothing was coming up and nothing was coming up. And then in, in June, 2021, Basically, two years after I was first diagnosed, I again felt really bad, went to the emergency room, got scanned, and they said, yeah, this is now worse. This is stage four, and uh, it seems to be quite, uh, it's sort of spread into stomach lining. And at the time, they were kind of relatively hopeful, I would say, that surgery would be able to remove what had grown and then I would do more chemo and even though you know even if that happens you're pretty likely to go back into into treatment again and again and again but then two weeks later when they did the surgery it transpired that what was in my stomach lining was a lot more both new, more numerous tumors and tumors that were a lot smaller and just couldn't at the mass of them couldn't be removed so the upshot was and, and is that I have technically terminal uh, stage four cancer I have been on chemotherapy, what would be called palliative chemotherapy, uh, since August 2021. And I'm like very happy to say that that initially that didn't look like it was going so well. And we had some pretty hairy moments, but um, we've had four good CT scans, basically a year of good CT scans in a row that show that nothing's growing and everything is kind of stable. And there's kind of no reason to think that that, at least for the medium term, won't continue. I had a CT scan last week, so I'm kind of in that moment where you're like waiting for the results and and that can be a little bit anxiety driving, I would say. But in general, like things have been pretty good. So I, why I say I live a kind of odd existence is I do chemotherapy every two weeks and I am not working and I won't go back to work because it's kind of impossible to do it because you spend one week feeling kind of pretty miserable and in treatment. And then you have another week where you actually feel pretty normal and look pretty normal and, and nobody would really think anything was off. And so those those weeks, I kind of 
try and fill with things I want to do, whether that's volunteering or in the summer, I was doing a lot of biking and a lot of golf. And obviously in Edmonton, that's not really a thing in the winter, but, but there's other things to fill my time. So, uh, so that, that's sort of where I am at and how I got onto this podcast. Thank you so much for sharing that. That's like, that's a lot. That's some pretty heavy stuff that's happened to you in the past couple of years. (laughs) It's been an interesting couple of years. Yeah, and I'm I'm guessing that you have a pretty cro- close relationship with your healthcare providers at this point, since you're going to chemo every two weeks. Yeah, you said. And, and so every two weeks. So you know, it's interesting, and one of the reasons why I kind of pitched me going on here is, and much more in the sort of uh, the palliative chemo. I'm not really connected to my doctors. Like I have not seen my oncologist in eight months. But I see the nurses constantly, right? Like I, I go on the, the Friday before my chemo, I go and get and meet with a, a registered nurse to go over my symptoms and where I'm at and whether my blood work is good enough to start treatment again. And then I spend, you know, basically all my treatments always on Monday. And I, I, I spend basically the whole of the Monday in a systemic treatment room with you know, different nurses every time. But nurses, you know, there's no there's never a doctor on that in that wing it's all nurses all the time when i have issues with scheduling or basically anything it's always rooted through nurses and so that's sort of been apart from sort of very occasional meetings with the sort of doctor end of the team it's all nurses all the time like i guess you have a bit of interest in like information sharing and impacting and how that's impacted your health journey throughout this whole process so do you want to share with us a little bit about your thoughts and your I guess your experience about information sharing and how yeah. that's happened with the healthcare team and with nurses and how so you've been included in that. I think I think there's like a few different aspects to it that have really struck me over the last year and a half. And and again, like it, I, I I really feel like everything kind of in my mind, everything's different with the with the palliative right? like these 31 rounds that I've done so far is it's so different an experience than the 12 rounds I did when I was initially diagnosed. I think I didn't, I didn't, when I was in that initial stage, I didn't think about it at all. Like it was just, um, okay, well, uh, you know, let's just go through the steps and we're going to, you know, we're going to do 12 sessions. And I I was never really thinking about kind of the relationship with the medical team or the ways in which my information is stored or shared or not shared because it was just like, let's get through this and we're done. But now, because this is basically my existence, it it it's sort of changed things. And the thing that I've really noticed, and I don't know, like, I'm very curious about your guys' thoughts about this, is, like, you know, I can see my, my file, or at least I used to, you know, when I would go in on Fridays, and it's getting thicker and thicker and thicker, because obviously, you know, everything gets added to it. But it's never totally clear to me, and it's often very mysterious to me, what the various nurses know about like how much they know of that file or not because it really it feels like a complete crapshoot often whether you know I'll go into systemic treatment and either the nurse is like I know your entire story or I'm kind of telling it all for the first time and I I found that just very like very interesting that that I I don't know what the like whether there's a happy ground for that whether that's just personal like someone is more interested than another person or 
because you know you have experiences with with nurses where they're like i know everything i know this is round 31 i know you know this you know i know your diagnosis i know you know all of this and then there are other times where you're kind of like honestly explaining things for the first time and I, I, it's just, it's, it's an odd position to be in every two weeks where you're kind of like, I don't know how much I need to tell this person. Can I, is it like a different nurse that you're seeing every time? I'm just curious about like the consistency oh, yeah. of, oh, interesting. So because I go, I was thinking about this, like how unusual would this be? I think in a big city, it's probably pretty common. Like where I go for treatment is the second biggest treatment center in the province. And so there's three systemic treatment rooms. I'll be in one of those three rooms. You know, you see the same nurses occasionally, but it's often a new nurse who I've not seen, even, you know, 31 rounds in. Uh, like last Monday, it was a nurse I'd never seen before. I think part of that is just there's a lot of turnover. And part of it is it's a big, you know, in in one systemic treatment room on any given day, there's probably, say, 15 people receiving chemotherapy and there's three rooms in the building. So, so it's just, a, it's, it's highly staffed, I guess you would say. That's huge. And it's interesting and very understandable you commenting on kind of that shift of your first experience, just being like, head down, let's get through this. And now that you're in this experience and returning with some regularity, starting to take that step back and be like, what is happening here? And even in some ways, it would be if no one ever knew your information, then you'd be like, okay, I need to give this speech mm -hmm. every time, or if they always knew your information. But it does kind of raise that issue of as you the patient there to be cared for, you're having to kind of handhold the healthcare team, and you don't know which one you're going to get on any given day. Yeah, well, and I can tell you the exact moment that this struck me as like, oh, I wonder what kind of what the protocol is here was, I can't remember, like, um, sometime last year, I was in treatment and it was a nurse I hadn't dealt before. And it, I, I, I don't know if you guys have ever worked on oncology wards, but you'll know the bell. Can you explain the bell? <laughs> yeah, so so the bell, there's in, in the treatment room, there's a bell and you ring it when you've done your... It's, I think it's called the bell of hope or something like that. And you, you ring it when you've done your treatment cycle. So like when I did my 12 rounds, um, you know, at the end of it, I, I rang this bell and everyone claps and, and you know, you, you get your picture taken and, and yada, yada, yada. And I was in treatment some, uh, last spring at some point. And the nurse who was treating, someone rang the bell. And, you know, everyone's clapping, great, you know, it's, it's a very happy moment. Um, and then uh, the nurse asked me, so like, how long until you get to ring the bell? And I was like, I'm not ringing that bell. <laughs> that's not happening. And if you had looked at my file, you might see that that's not happening. And that's when I had kind of been like, I wonder like what it's, it, it that really struck me that like, okay, these, you know, not everyone has the same amount of information, even though it's all on the same file, if that makes sense. Yeah, that's so wild. I, oh, I feel like I want to say I'm sorry on behalf. Oh no, and, and, like, <laughs> like, I, I don't begrudge anyone, and it's a totally <laughs> fine question. Like I was, I wasn't hurt by it. I was, but it was just like this is kind of like the number one bullet on my file. <laughs> <laughs> like, and I think that it brings up the question, especially in this time where so many um, units are short-staffed and nurses are being floated from other units. But as you touched on, it also brings up this question of how differently nurses approach their work because nurses take in so much information. And then 
as we've chatted about a bit in other conversations, this idea of confidentiality and kind of privacy and information sharing and sometimes nurses. Like it's funny, I find I'll always know when there's someone somewhat famous getting mm. healthcare in the system because we get a, with no explanation, email saying, just a reminder, don't look up anyone's health records. <laughs> okay, yeah, who who is getting healthcare right now? So there's that kind of messaging yeah. of like, don't look up your own health record, don't look up other people's health record that you're not caring for. And we get it drilled into us to be so conscious about confidential information. But well, then the flip side of that, yeah, is not being so guarded about those things. That was my other, that was the other aspect that I was thinking about it. And partly I think it comes from this idea of confidentiality and, and the, the kind of, it's important. It, it's definitely important. And I kind of spent my legal career in with the federal government where there's a similar, you know, similar kind of, I don't want to say fetishization, but like there's legal requirements around confidentiality and privacy that are incredibly stringent and, and that you have to follow and that you can get in very serious trouble if you don't follow. You know, at the same time, I have sort of been thinking more and more that although there's probably nothing to be done about it, and although everyone's circumstances are different, that the system kind of fetishizes privacy a little bit more than it probably should, you know, it, to be effective. And I think like like one of the things that's happened in Alberta, and I don't know whether this has happened in BC or not, is, is we've all moved to uh, electronic health records. And so like every hospital, every treatment center is on something called Connect Care. Everything is electronic now. And I now have access to all of my appointments and stuff. In fact, like I have to access them electronically. I can't like get a proper printout or anything like that. But because of the legal requirements around privacy and because of just the obsession with privacy in the system, accessing those records electronically is the biggest pain in the butt because they keep forcing you to change your password that you have to enter like seven different passwords to get into the system. You have, you know, like it, it's like overprotected in a way. And then even when it's your own information, getting the system to share it can be incredibly difficult. So my dad, as, as Claire, as you know, my dad is a radiologist and there have been times where it would have been just kind of easier to get him access to whatever scan that I have had um, rather than wait two weeks for to get a call for the result. Like he could look it up and, and get it. We did that once and we got flagged and he got a stern reprimand for looking up my health records with my that, that just It seems to me that like there's like an overprotectiveness there. If, if a patient can't say this person who is licensed to practice medicine in the province has the right to access my health record and, and is is sort of privacy for privacy's own sake rather than privacy for the intended purpose. Can I say one more thing yeah. about electronic health records and see whether you're Yeah, there? yeah, yeah, go ahead. This has nothing to do with privacy, but it's just mm -hmm. the way it works in Alberta. Yeah. Is all the nurses now. So I was in I was hospitalized when the big university hospital went on to Connect Care, which is the electronic health system. And then I was in treatment when the cross cancer went on to Connect Care and I experienced the exact same thing twice, which was before you were getting a lot more personal attention <laughs> and now the nurses are all looking at a computer all the time. Yeah. To give you some context in the lower mainland, there's been, there also has been a shift kind of the same time as connect care to electronic health record across the health authorities. And my 
job for the past three years was implementation of the electronic health record. And it is, yeah, for sure. There's a, it's almost like the fact that it's electronic is ahead of the knowledge and the ability of the clinicians to actually use that in a person-centered way, if that makes sense. Because it's supposed to promote continuity of care. It's supposed to open more access of patients and their family and care providers. But it's like, we don't know how to do that yet because we're so used to paper and it being like secretive and you lock it up and you have to go through a process where you sign a million forms to access them. And I will say like, like to give all the staff credit like it it in both instances it, it got better but it was just it it was weird to experience it twice where you went from one day where because it was paper charting it was sort of a lot of like kind of just like little things like eye contact and stuff like that and then everyone suddenly had laptops on little rolly things and yeah they're just like looking at their laptop while they're doing it and you're like this is really weird but uh like it looks kind of like sci-fi. Everyone's just rolling around the hospital with these laptops on on little carts. But um, but I would like to give people credit. Like it, I think that is sort of the experience for the first month, and then people do actually kind of figure it out. And it is it is weird though, and I agree. Like you would think, like oh, a computer and the internet, I can just eat very easily access my record and give whoever my care providers are access so that they can look at my health information. But it's not that's not the way it actually yeah. is in practice. If you had to like give some tips or some feedback for nurses and clinicians and the healthcare system about like how, you know, information sharing in this whole process, like what would your, what would your advice be? I think so like to start out with, I, I made a joke when I, I told someone I was coming on this podcast that I was, I was coming on to expose the ner- the truth about nurses. And the truth is they're very nice and mostly very good at their jobs. So like that, that would be my starting point. Like in general, I have had excellent experience with nursing throughout this entire process. I think with specifically with regard to information sharing or like the level of knowledge that exists for a particular nurse or a particular, I think kind of a bit more openness is would not be a bad thing at the front of an interaction to be like, I either I'm familiar with your file or, hey, I've, I've been loaded up. You've been loaded onto my chart today five minutes ago. I don't know anything about you. Um, and I wouldn't take that as an insult at all. I would take that as an opportunity to be like or, you know, a positive so that I know what I'm dealing with, if that makes sense. Yeah, uh, that make totally makes sense. Yeah, because because like I say, a lot of the time it's just it's just sort of not knowing you're kind of like, you know, I I know my file is thick and you might know it or you might not. And I really don't know. That makes so much sense. And it kind of touches back to what you were talking about before, just with the things like eye contact and communication with you. And just that idea of nurses being able to be nurses and be human and see you as a human. So it's not just that they're popping into the room for the 10th person they've seen that day, that they can kind of take that second to ground themselves before they have an interaction with you and they can be honest about, yeah, hey, I've really had the chance. I know everything that's going on or I know the basics, but yeah, can we you're, you're the again? 20th person I've seen in the last 10 minutes and I maybe know your first name. Yeah, but, totally. Yeah. And then that helps you feel that, yeah, that gives you a bit of a roadmap as well. Yeah. And, and I, the reason I say that in part is because one of the lessons that I've really taken from this whole experience is 
and I was I was told this when I was first diagnosed. I went to a young cancer meetup thing, um, and I didn't end up going to those meetings regularly because I didn't want my whole life to be about that. But when I went to this one, uh, this this woman who who sort of had a similar diagnosis to me said like the one thing you need to know is no one is going to be your advocate like you have to be your advocate and and that's been borne out time and time and time again and it is a lot easier to do that if you know kind of where the person you're dealing with what their information level is if that make if that makes sense like it, it it's it makes that process of kind of fighting the fights that you want to fight easier if you're all on the same page or you know that you're not so you need to give additional information and to be clear like i i would never begrudge a nurse for not knowing because like god knows you know i mean you guys are in the thick of it but even you know in the in the cancer world like they're overrun and it's short-staffed and it's uh you know there are days that are just terrible i'm sure and the the unfailing kind of positivity is is actually really remarkable so it's not about like oh you should know my entire file it's more about if you can give me a sense of what you do know we can work you know we can work easier um than me kind of playing 20 questions yeah totally and I feel like that's also very gracious of you and kind to meet nurses in the middle me hard on myself and hard on other nurses or like high expectations I'm like no like I want you to be surrounded by a healthcare team who knows what your story is. I can see the benefits of having that common thread of communication so that you don't have to do so much heavy lifting because ultimately the patient is the one that's being cared for. Like, you, like, you know, the, just I would hope that the system could meet you and like the system does its job and you do your job, which is like showing up. <laughs> Mostly that's it, showing up and falling asleep in a bed. Yeah, that's thinking about just kind of the arc of our conversation and what we've chatted about. Is there anything else, whether related to information sharing or your experience um, being so closely connected to the healthcare system over the last few years, anything you want to share with nurses or reflections that you want to kind of reiterate? I, I want to share my conspiracy theory about nurses. I have one. Right here. Yeah. All, all the nurses here, I want you to hear this because you're wrong <laughs> about this. So if you go for any healthcare at all, broken leg, whatever, a nurse, and it's always a nurse, it's never a doctor, will ask you, are you hydrated enough? It is just <laughs> the constant question. And that's fine. But as a chemo patient, it's important. In my chemo weeks, drinking is not always the most comfortable sensation in the world. And so you do have to be intentional about it. That's fine. That's a totally legitimate question. But then the nurse universally will ask you, well, what did you have to drink? And if you say coffee, they will tell you that coffee doesn't count. Now, Claire, you know that I'm a little bit of a coffee obsessive and I measure all my coffee. So I have the maths in front of me. In the morning, I pour 350 milliliters of water through 21 grams of ground coffee. And accounting for the amount that's soaked up by the grounds and the amount of coffee that's diluted into the cup, what's in the cup is about 310 milliliters of water to four grams of coffee. It is not a cup of sand. Coffee is a mild diuretic and it counts towards hydration. You cannot tell me this is what you're most passionate about. The whole conversation. And the worst one is tea. They'll say, well, tea doesn't count. Oh, like a bunch of dirty leaves that were in water for three minutes doesn't count towards hydration. Either there is a mass professional psychosis 
or nurses are being paid off by big hydration. But I like it is crazy to me that this is universally the experience I have had. And I was in the chemo chair last two weeks ago or three weeks ago. And there was an elderly patient who wasn't totally there mentally. And the nurse is asking, you know, how much did you drink? What did you drink today? Oh, I had a cup of tea. Oh, tea doesn't count. And you could see him, even in a slight mental fog, think you're insane. As my eyes rolled so hard, they fell onto the floor. It was like, <laughs> nurses, coffee can count towards hydration. You don't want all your hydration to be coffee for other reasons. I only have one cup a day, but it doesn't, it's not zero. It's mostly water. I love, My rant is over. I love that this is, uh, <laughs> I feel like I was going to say previously that I hope you write a book. I feel like, and I, I say that earnestly, I feel like you have seen and witnessed and learned so much that, uh, yeah, I hope you write a book someday. But perhaps the book can be about hydration. And <laughs> yeah, yeah. Of- or that can be a chapter of the book. That's right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I do feel like, although you, I was with, you with hydration but then the tea throws me because that's my number one go-to as a nurse when like nothing else is working and someone's having a really hard time and they're just you know having a rough day my go-to is always to offer a cup of tea and that's that's good maybe I'd be in the nurse's bad books too (laughs) I love that can be your crusade yeah yeah it's good to have a mission yeah you can have a little placard tea is hydration I love it. Any last questions before we wrap up, Michelle? No, but I really want to thank you for joining us today and sharing your story and being our first non-nurse guest. It's It was great. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. This was a pleasure. Yeah, thank you so much. In healthcare, we are with our patients at the best of times and the worst of times. As nurses, we have the privilege of being with people we provide care to when they find out their treatment was a success. And we're also there when they get a life-changing diagnosis. We're privy to so much information about all sorts of healthcare issues. We collaborate with other healthcare clinicians, with staff and patients and their families when we provide a plan of care to our patients. We can't take this role that we have as healthcare providers for granted. It's essential that we keep in mind the patient experience and their understanding of why we're collecting that health information to begin with and what we do with it. It's also essential for us to take the time to know our patients, whether that's through thoroughly reading their health record or letting them know when we walk into that exam room that it's been a really busy day and we didn't have time to read through their chart but we're going to provide the best care that we can. Thanks again for listening to another episode of the Shift Change Podcast. If you like this episode or want to share any feedback with us, please visit our website at www.theshiftchangepodcast.ca. Our website has blog posts, behind-the-scenes photos, and links to our Instagram and Twitter accounts. See you next month. (music) 